I'd like to start by welcoming you all to this online conversation thanks to the support from the National Heritage Fund. Alternative Fictions has been invited by Newington Green Meeting House to organise this online discussion. We're going to move on to talking a little bit about um, online activism and hashtags. So with everything moving online, it's inevitable that the internet has become a space for activism and it's like played out in addition to what happens on the ground. Um, and like, I think at the beginning, people saw it as maybe not really being that relevant, but we've seen like in several social movements around the world, how powerful a tool the internet has become in terms of um, supporting, um, supporting actions that are happening on the ground whether it's mobilizing support, organizing people, raising awareness and challenging governments, as well as actually just creating the attention for the media and having this documentation of what's happening. Um, over the years, we've seen like hashtags have become a huge part of activism, which I mean, start as early as the Arab Spring, we've been seeing this happen. And um, how we interact and respond with this online information has become a key factor in our understanding of standing in solidarity with causes and what we can do as allies in supporting. So we're gonna start this video and then maybe say a little bit more um, afterwards. So what we've done for this one is we've taken some screenshots and some screen recordings from Twitter feeds, um, looking at some of the, some issues that are happening just now. And we have audio from um, um, and then also the audio is coming from a TED talk, actually. So could you hear the audio at least? That was all there. Okay, yeah. great. We felt like um, there was just some pretty poignant words about the nature of um, the internet being our access to issues happening around the world. I'm going to start this video again instead of rambling now. Uh, we consume on a daily basis. Now, more than ever, our sense of community and consciousness has become more global. We are more aware of the injustices going on throughout our world. And whilst this has added credence and volume to many of these issues that matter, I think it has also made us numb. Numb to the pain and the violence and the war because we could not possibly feel it all. And if we did, well, what could we do? Yeah, so um, we've seen how effective technology and hashtagging can be. And notably, we witnessed this this year with Black Lives Matter and also very recently how Nigerian youth have been using um, technological innovations to organize and um, make the NSARS protests run efficiently and easily. Um, so beyond hashtagging, we've seen how technology can effectively be used as a fundraising tool as well, finding new methods to gather funds for causes and also through creating new media platforms that aim to provide truthful accounts of what's actually happening. Um, this is essential work that is happening online as well as like um, in addition to what's happening offline. Um, and it also allows people like elsewhere to support 
actions that are happening in person. Um, however, um, there are times in which the relation between online and offline activism doesn't necessarily maintain, is not necessarily positive. And this can present itself as a hindrance to a cause. So one term we've come to know to describe this is slacktivism. So instances of online activism that merely remain in this domain by simply sharing and retweeting, but not necessarily engaging with the offline element of activism. So for example, like um, Blackout Tuesday, which we just saw on screens was one example that people have recently been um, called an example of slacktivism. And um, yeah, just for a bit of context for this last video, this is um, a screenshot that someone did of them uploading a K-pop fan cam to a police surveillance video, um, a police video surveillance app in the States um, when um, the Dallas police, well, I think several police forces were um, asking for video footage from protests so that they could um, arrest protesters. Um, so K-pop fans can rally together and start to upload videos of their favorite um, K-pop bands to try and cut um, shut down these platforms essentially. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, sorry about the confusion there about um, whether that was a video or not. I hope it's a bit clearer now. <laughs> um, so yeah, the question we kind of want to kick off this discussion about it is kind of talk about trends and hashtags and who does this serve and why do we actually post about issues online? Like is this, are these acts of allyship and solidarity or is it actually not doing much at all? Um, Jules, just to, sorry, just to cut quickly. If mm -hmm. we can maybe pause, just keep your screen share on and if we can just go to different points in it, because it was fuzzy for some people, including Omar. Ah. So just maybe as we're talking through the points, that would be helpful just to have some stuff on focus. Okay, I'll try and find the right bits for the discussion yeah. then. Um, yeah, is there any... Uh, are there any thoughts of any of what we just saw? Or? I think that, although maybe sometimes unhelpful, like with the Blackout Tuesday thing, um, in terms of giving people something really kind of useless to do that lets them forget about it the next day. Um, and also I, I did see something um, around that time about how, because it was now flooding the feed with black screens, actual information that people on the ground needed to be able to connect with each other about wasn't being you know you couldn't access that as easily um but also i think an essential part of any sort of campaigning and activism is awareness and social media platforms and hashtags that we use on them are a key part of, of able to spread awareness as well um, like with the nsars lately you know you can find out what's going on by just clicking on that hashtag um, and not actually needing to necessarily go to a website that might have information about it or have a conversation with someone who knows more about it. So in that sense, I think there is definitely a lot of good in, in using them as well. 
I um I have to say, like with the Blackout Tuesday thing, I I mean I I didn't like it at the start, but then also felt like one if I not called people out because I think that wouldn't have been helpful but if I had messaged maybe some friends that did that I then didn't want to come across as like oh I know better than you or oh you didn't get it or you've done this wrong because that's really condescending but then having that conversation of you know I feel like it's wrong or maybe that it's maybe not really what you meant because it doesn't you know it doesn't really help I find that conversation really difficult and I'm sure it, it well it's just a really difficult conversation to have and I think maybe face to face in real life but we haven't been able to do that recently and I think that that's a conversation that I perhaps having a coffee walking around a park could have gone into it in a bit of a less heavy way than perhaps sending a Facebook message or a WhatsApp message or something like that that seems so kind of um strong um but um oh there was something else that I was going to say um, I can't remember. But yeah, I just remember finding that um, quite difficult at the time, feeling really uncomfortable with it, but then feeling like, should I say something? Is it my place to say something? Would it actually be helpful if I said something? And I think one thing it, it did do as well was let us, well, let me see actually the people who I had on my Facebook who I maybe hadn't spoken to in years and don't ever see them posting anything about Black Lives Matter or anything that was happening. But then seeing them do that kind of let me know that actually there is a willingness there. They just probably don't have the knowledge to engage with a conversation about it with other people or, you know, don't know what the, the steps are that they could do um, and probably feel a bit hopeless in engaging because well, I can't change a big world problem kind of thing. Um, so I suppose in some senses, it's helpful if there were people that they could that could then reach out to them and kind of you know help them in in understanding a bit more i think there is this but it's also i because with when this happened i i mean i have some people who i saw posting it but also people who messaged me personally asking saying that they wanted to learn and that they wanted to understand and wanted resources and all sorts which I thought was great but it's also for me it was quite a difficult time and to have to take a space to educate someone I just I was not going to do and actually it made me quite upset that people weren't willing to like Google is there use it <laughs> um, so it kind of felt like an at times quite an empty gesture and then also seeing people who posted it and then looking at their feeds now and there's still a black square but then that's it and there's nothing else so like, are you actually, are you actually doing anything? Like, are you educating yourself? Are you trying to support the cause or are you just jumping on the bandwagon because everyone else has done it? Yeah, and I think what I saw as well, and I'm sure what a lot of people saw is the same thing, like just the black square or, you know, just reposting a story and then not, you know, not being really explicit on what, how you're going to change your life and how you're going to adjust what you've been doing in order to actively be anti-racist in your day-to-day -day life. So, um, which can seem quite performative, but also then can back up, you know, sharing sharing a post and say, and also acknowledging your mistakes, um, like uh, Lydia was saying earlier and saying, okay, well, previously I thought that I didn't see a problem with Gone With The Wind, but now, thanks to BLM and an article I read, um, 
I no longer think that's an appropriate film to watch and I'm going to like talk about it with a friend who, I don't know, runs a cinema or something. You, you know what I mean? And um, if you just back it up and give examples, then I think that can also be really helpful. And I'm, I don't think that many people were really doing that. The thing I was going to say, which I now remember, is that I, on a more positive note, I suppose, is that um, I noticed the wave change then after Black Squares, about two weeks later, there started to be a change in the narrative where people started to say, and it wasn't helpful, it wasn't done in a helpful way, because then it was suddenly, oh gosh, everyone who shared a Black Square is terrible and didn't think about that properly. And, but I mean, I one was impressed and it gave me hope that the narrative was changing and that suddenly people were thinking about this critically. And I wish that there was lots of other parts of history people would put that much energy into thinking critically about or other issues going on today, you know. So that gave me a bit of hope. I mean, I don't think it was done in a way that was particularly helpful, but it did make me think, hmm, I remember thinking that, not acting on it or doing anything, seeing how that one would ride out. And then, I don't know, I suppose it was kind of affirming in one way to think, oh, other people felt the same way as me. But then I, it unfortunately was executed terribly and it was just a bit of a kind of blame game. I think maybe another good way of, um, that illustrated for me how doing something like um, putting a black, black screen on your page for a day or a week or whatever is doesn't really have much value is a couple of weeks later when we had the statue being pulled down. Um, and I think, you know, I'll have a conversation with kind of the different sort of opinions of how helpful that is and whether it should be done like that, or shouldn't be done like that. Um, you know, I, I can have that conversation. But what was really interesting is people who were saying that they were you know, Black Lives Matter and putting their black screen on, we're now calling people thugs and criminals um, and, and riding that narrative to just completely um, dismiss any need for protests and any, um, any injustice that's there. And that's really telling because it shows that actually when something is so easy for anybody to do, them doing it is not going to actually their deeper views around that issue. And it can make people think that, oh, yeah, well, loads of people I knew did that. So therefore, it can't be that bad. Um, and that's obviously really harmful as well. I think one thing I find interesting, or one thing that's really made me uh, reflect on myself personally recently is, um, so I actually don't post on social media like ever, I post on Facebook maybe once every three months or something like that. So I do personally wonder whether I should be on Facebook more posting about this stuff or should I post only about this stuff? Like, like um, should I break my non-Facebook habit to do that? Um, or is it, does that come across as performative or not? Or like how to approach that as someone that doesn't really like social media that much because one thing I've seen a lot in a lot of this discussion is this, like people saying your silence is complicity. And I wouldn't say I'm silent. I'm just maybe quiet on social media when at the same time I'll be having conversations with people very much in real life or in one-to-one -one conversations. 
Um, so I also wonder, is there maybe some other aspects of this online, yeah, this kind of aspect of kind of, there's a lot of focus on the online right now and the kind of, I guess, curated personas. And I wonder if there's some aspects of that that can also be unhelpful or if that's something we should all just be like, well, we live in the digital age, we need to have our online presences and use them. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of something I've been really personally thinking a lot about. Um, I think if you've remained off of Facebook and composed something every three months, I'd stick with that. <laughs> I mean, it's a dark place. And I, if you're having conversations about it, that's far better than, you know, posting on social media. I mean, I do, I am a social media, you know, on Facebook freak. I do a lot of campaigning that kind of keeps me on it. And I do try to kind of break through those algorithms that if I feel I've got something that I want to see a lot of my friends see, I will post for a, a day, like funny stuff, stuff that gets people engaged so that when I, I kind of hit them with this video or text or whatever, then they hopefully see that. But, you know, we are fighting AI in, in that aspect and I'm not too sure whether we're winning that war, you know. Um, it would be good to think that, you know, the stuff that we positively posted, then all of our friends got that message from that, you know. But uh, yeah, stay off Facebook. <laughs> I think it can be useful for organising, so to actually do things out in the real world. That's what I'm mainly kind of looking on it for. And I get very frustrated that I don't really find, find too much of it. But um, yeah, that's that's what I want to use it for. Because um, I'm, yeah, I'm eager to actually do something practical. <laughs> um, and I do think it can... Yeah, the internet in general does cause apathy like you know just clicking on a clicking on a, a petition makes you know triggers something in your brain to think that you've done something and that's enough but um yeah it's just i don't think it is enough and then you know jules you say you're not on it but you are actually doing stuff out there so there's no need you know the amount i mean the amount of time i've wasted trying to find people to do stuff outside with even is um yeah so it's, it's a big time waster isn't it but it's difficult yeah. we can't know we can't you can't really get the statistics on knowing exactly how many people have been led to do something because of it or not, or, but yeah. I think what you mentioned about organizing is actually one of, it's one of the most important things. And like, just looking at what's happened with NSARS at the moment and how the youth of Nigeria managed to mobilize so much support, managed to get so many people onto the streets. Mm. So many people are protesting and they've also raised so much money that's been distributed across and like that's, where you see the internet winning and it being positive. And like even the CEO of Twitter, he managed to get accounts like the Feminist Collective. He got them verified on Instagram and all this kind of stuff. So you can see how it can have a positive impact. I think when we've got, um, you know, when we see videos now, politicians and, and their, what they're saying um, in the House of Commons and things and stuff that are going to be really relevant to a lot of different kinds 
because of activist causes, um, like the Equalities Minister yesterday, the day before. Um, and I think if you are on social media and our cause is to engage with these kinds of things, then it then creates a really good opportunity to be able to share that and comment on it and, you know, um, using what the, the, the different parties are sharing as sort of talking points and action points as well, because they're the people shaping a lot of the things that are going to either help us or hinder us in what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, I think if you're not on social media, that's one thing. But when you are, I think it's almost really important that you do engage with that stuff. Personally, I think, um, sorry, personally, I think internet, I think it's quite neutral. It's just the toxicity around certain groups of people who use it in a kind of a compulsive, uh, performative way. But like like NSARS, like um, the Hong Kong protests, the internet was you know kind of essential to the activism. Um, I also think there is a kind of a information war going on in the internet. Um, just as Equalities, um, I think the Equalities Minister, I think she was a product of that information war, because you see that in America going on. Where um, I don't know if you've heard of PragerU, but there's this um, huge information campaign by you know, you know the people at the top the elites who are you know trying to spread disinformation misinformation and there is a kind of battle to fight that if on the and you don't necessarily need to do it on the internet but it's like there is a, there is that war going on um to kind of sequester and consolidate more power over masses because of course you know democracy uh, they're kind of anti-petical democracy um so yeah, there is that information kind of war going on. Yeah. I think also, um, I mean, that's building on what Kate just did as well. I mean, the internet is a tool and I think it also comes back to, you know, the fact that there are, there are many ways that activism can be expressed and not every way is gonna suit everybody. And I think sometimes, I think myself, I've, <laughs> the, the term activism can actually kind of be a little bit off-putting or create some kind of anxiety and I know that I have various privileges that come along with you know I'm able to do certain things you know because of those privileges and to have my voice heard in ways that other people can't um you know so I think yeah I, I think it just depends on where you feel you can place your skills as well and that so there's many different ways that that can be expressed practically in terms of taking action but that action doesn't always have to look you know in, in a certain sort of traditional way that we think activism should always look like um because i mean it's a very i mean with the the protesters that um Heathrow airport it's a very it can be a very physical thing it can be a, it's and I've often I've been in situations where I thought, you know, I would really I really wish I was brave enough to do that. And I haven't been brave enough to do that. And maybe that's something really I should work on. But also maybe it's <laughs> it, it means that perhaps there are other ways that I can I can be an activist um, and do tangible things without outside of that kind of conventional space or that image of the activist. Okay, so I think we've got um, Jacqueline want to say something if I'm not going to move on. 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to share a little bit about how I got involved through EVR, um, which is End the Virus of Racism that um, I work with Francesca on. Um, so this campaign organization existed purely from the internet. We, none of us knew each other before this year. And it was through um, just it, platforms like Instagram and WhatsApp that we managed to connect with each other. And we've built into a network of over 30 different people from all different sectors. Um, and we're existing purely to um, try to advocate for voices of East and Southeast Asian um, people living in the UK because of the fact that racism and hate crimes had increased by 300% this year with coronavirus. Um, and we felt that there wasn't really any kind of organization that was speaking out about um, racism towards our community. And there was a lot of, and within that, there's a lot of fractured community with within the East and Southeast Asian network in the UK because there are so many different nationalities involved that and that comes with a lot of history and different cultures and this is the first time I think you know so many different nationalities of East and Southeast Asian heritage have come together to, to kind of fight this one fight um, and within that we've managed to build a strong group of people through WhatsApp and I've been organizing on our social media pages. I post um, most days on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And that does open yourself up to so many possibilities, but within that, it does make you, you very vulnerable um, to a lot of criticism, especially because there's so many different voices within the organization. People are always trying to you know, push forward for their, um, their own experiences or their you know, unique kind of expertise. And I think what's really difficult about activism is that because so there are so many challenges and there's so many difficulties facing in the world, so you, you want to fight for everything, but then also, you also you, that lent, leads to burnout and you can't be campaigning for every single voice because I mean, I'm just one person. I'm just posting things on Facebook and Instagram, but, and I want to try and, you know, advocate for all voices, but then again, like there's only so much I can spend my time on. So there, there becomes a lot of guilt and criticism. And even though it's such a powerful tool that you can use to amplify so many voices, um, you feel like because the internet is a 24 hour thing, you should also be online all the time and always talking and always tweeting and always sharing stories but you can't be online all the time. So um, I think it's just, it's a really tricky thing that I'm constantly trying to find a balance in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great, thanks for that. Okay, so we're going to move on to the last um, set of videos for today. And we, for the last one, we want to speak about um, actions and words and deeds um, so behind every hashtag and process slogan, there lies issues that tangibly affect communities and people. And many of these issues have existed long before these campaigns and sadly many continue to exist after. Um, so we kind of want to look at what happens beyond, um, beyond this campaign and also um, look at how how, for example, campaigns can maybe, or like particularly campaigns that are trendy can wash over some issues faced by a community 
or how um, it can, how problematic imagery or ideas can be furthered in the name solidarity and also what happens when issues fall out of trend. Um, so, um, yeah, so one thing, for example, is that obviously we saw this huge spike of people talking about how Black Lives Matter. And then um, now is people are kind of posting Black Lives Still Matter because like after that initial wave, um, not so many people are talking about it, particularly people that who aren't directly impacted by this issue. And you'll see this somewhere, but um, we have a graph of, um, a graph of like the amount of interaction that search term has had over the last five years. So the first spike there would be maybe the initial Black Lives Matter, but then- So it's finally happened. Um, the thing you were afraid of. So, I mean, look at that, like, this is kind of, we had this huge amount of interest in how much it's tapered off over since April. And yeah, the last thing we kind of want to bring up is COVID because it is something that is a very current issue. It's something that affects a lot of people. And I think particularly we've been thinking a lot about how one thing we've been discussing a lot is clapping for... Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, <laughs> so I actually do have COVID at the moment, which is why I'm ill. Yeah, just get a text over going, which I have, woo! Um, yeah, good thing we're doing this online. Um, but yeah, we want to, to put it into context. One thing we want, we've been speaking a lot about is how, particularly during the first set of lockdowns in, well, various countries some of us are in, we've had this kind of ritual of clapping for carers once a day or once a week. And um, one thing we've been discussing a lot about is, um, yeah, what, what does this clapping actually do? Is it, there's a lot of this talk about solidarity and all coming together, but at the same time, there's also quite a lot of underlying issues here um, that, um, like for example, the fact that um, when we're talking about um, solidarity with carers or healthcare workers, the majority of uh, healthcare workers who have died in the NHS have been people of colour and many of them being immigrants that have um, come to the UK to support that system. Um, like one statistic we have is that Filipino nurses have, um, they comprise 3.8% of the nursing workforce, um, but they represent 22% of NHS nurse deaths. And on top of that, um, being people in the UK are more at risk of dying from COVID due to existing structural inequalities. And at one point, the ONS statistics were suggesting that black people are more likely, are four times more likely to die of COVID in the UK. Um, so the last thing we want to show is the video, like, you clap for me now, which is talking about um, racism and um, anti-immigrant sentiment um, in relation to COVID and uh, this workforce. So it's finally happened. That thing you were afraid of. 
Something's come from overseas. And taken your jobs. Made it unsafe to walk the streets. Kept you trapped in your home. A dirty disease. Your proud nation gone. But not me. Or me. Or me. Or me. No, you clap for me now. You cheer as I toil. Bringing food to your family. Bringing food from your soil. Propping up your hospitals. Not some foreign invader. A village driver. Teacher. Lifesaver. Don't say go home. Don't say not here. You know how it feels for home to be a prison. You know how it feels to live in fear. So you clap for me now. All this love you are bringing. But don't forget when it's no longer quiet. Don't forget when you can no longer hear the birds singing. Or see clear waters. That I cross for you. To make lives filled with peace. And bring peace to your life too. Come all you Gretas. You Malalas. You immigrants. See what we have learned. It only takes the smallest thing to change the world. watching that um yeah so i think what we'd like to maybe talk about is talk about sustainability in the conversations we have and the activism we engage ourselves in and um yeah we'd love to hear some thoughts on how people um maybe some tactics maybe people can think of or how can we ensure that the work that we do is sustainable and um, yeah, like how do we make sure that um, activism isn't just uh, trendy and that it actually can cause some tangible change and some positive change for people's lives. One thing, it doesn't exactly answer, um, but my daughter's 10 and I have very lengthy conversations with her about racism and inequity and, you know, the, the issues specifically as well. Um, and one, I suppose I'm, I, I have those conversations often because of work and everything as well. So it's kind of just the stuff that's on my mind. Um, but also I think it's really important that as she grows up, these are it, this these things aren't something she learns about when she's 25 um and then she wants to educate herself and and maybe make some kind of impact into those things um and so i suppose actually and i'm thinking out loud um working with young people around the work that we do um for the same reasons you know so that it's not something that only adults are engaging with and that they can grow into that in a much more, um, I suppose, easier way, um, is one way to to ensure that it's not just starting again in each generation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely very relevant when talking about sustainability. Like, is that's like proper long-term discussions because like there's definitely a lot of these issues we're talking about shouldn't be something that every like five years or 10 years become trendy again. Like, you know, because ultimately we should be wanting to not have these conversations. Uh, like for some of these issues, we shouldn't really, the aim should be not to be um, campaigning for some of these things because we should hope that there's nothing there to campaign for ultimately. Yeah. Something you grow up with and becomes part of you rather than you know, something you do extra. I think maybe community stuff as well, like the things that you can do in your immediate community and making it again, something you do outside of the internet and it's a social thing. So again, it becomes more part of life rather than an extra thing. I hope my, my kind of hope for, for the coronavirus um, situation obviously has so many negatives and so many tragedies and um, the one kind of thing that I am keeping as hopeful is the amount of community action and mutual aid groups and suddenly being thinking collectively isn't this radical lefty loony thing anymore people are going hey I can you know knock on my door of my neighbours or I can start a Facebook group and then we can collectively work together and it doesn't seem you know and that way of thinking I think is so important and has been you know intentionally um people in power have intentionally stopped that happening over the past 40 years and so I, you know in in Britain I'm talking about so I think that um that's really nice and empowering and hopeful to see and I'm hoping that like what Sarah said that that will then stretch to other areas of of life that maybe people will start to think yeah small community-based but then what can I do and actually it's you know something that that you can do and that people are doing it and that there is an infrastructure or they can create that infrastructure to do to do that kind of work. I think um, in terms of thinking about sustainability, uh, that also means sustainability of the people who are running the movement. So going back to, you know, talking about self-care, um, it, it's important that all the people who are fueling all of this um, aren't burning themselves out so that then there's a massive push and explosion in activism. And then within a year, six months, two years, whatever, like everyone's burnt out, can't work with each other anymore. Um, so that's, that's, you know, a huge component of activism, especially when you're working on things like racism that are fueled by anger, by emotion, and you need to be angry in order to be engaged on a lot of this stuff. That's difficult because as a human, there's only so much anger that you can give until you know you burn out. And second, I think it's about uh, translating uh, you know solidarity activism into more material gains. So if you start out as an activist group, as a campaigning organization, how are you going to translate that into um, power into demands into um, actual tangible outcomes for your community. And money and funding is really important to that point as well. So knowing how to organize and access funds um, and create partnerships with, you know, the way you can have a more sustained stream of funding as well. 
because a lot of the time obviously it's it's voluntary and it's um just individuals coming together but to do anything full time and long terms obviously people need to live as well so being able to have funding to to take care of people in that way is is really important and I think just to to go back to what I mentioned earlier with the comments around the equalities minister and what that looks like in in how that's um, progressed in the US as well um, that's really dangerous and really kind of frightening to think that actually if we're starting to silence these kinds of conversations then that's that can expand really quickly to cut off a lot of um, the funding streams that we have to to do this kind of work and to address these issues um, so pushing back on that I suppose is also an urgent thing in order to um, create sustainability long term or ensure it yeah I think also one thing that thinking about what you're speaking about there Melissa is also just um yeah thinking about actually the structures that be as they are and the um like the impacts that would be possible or, or just kind of like actually looking at what you're fighting against I guess sometimes and um yeah it's kind of like every like every government has its own uh not bias mandate I'm trying to think of the right word right now um agenda agenda that's exactly the word I'm looking for um and it does um and it really does, I think, can, like, do we think actually being able to go into structures, like, like, does, like, does politics mean anything in this, like, does being, like, having political representation mean anything, or um, being able to work in schools and things like that, like, thinking of the actual structures that, um, that kind of continue inequality, or where, um, Sorry, I'm thinking out loud here and I am a renowned rambler. So um, if someone wants to jump in and stop me, they should feel free. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like for like talk about the equalities minister and saying that it should be illegal to talk about white privilege or to say that white privilege is a fact or um, I live in Germany. I like can't talk about Palestine, for example, if I wanted to, um, that would basically mean that I'd be cut off from doing pretty much anything. I wouldn't have my job right now. Um, it's, um, yeah, so I don't know. I think basically what I'm trying to say is how do structures fit into all of this? I think, if anyone has any thoughts on that. Sorry, I am rambling, I'll shut up now. I think that that's really important and it shows us that the bottom line is actually changing those structures in order for like you said earlier not having to campaign around these issues um anymore you know at some point in the future it it requires the structures that uphold it to be different um and then is that a matter of needing to work within them um rather than tearing them down so I think that's definitely long-term thinking has to think about those things, how it impacts us, but also how we can change it. I mean, I, I'd, one of the, the things I, when I think about sustainability is 
I used to be a teacher and that's how I kind of got into this kind of sector um, and and working on history projects and still means that I do a lot of sc in schools and so today and yesterday I did assemblies all day um, all day today and yesterday with year ones all the way up to year sixes about well, it's critically thinking about history really and how history has many different versions and who gets to say which version is correct and then went on to talk about um, the debate with the statues after George Floyd's death and and how they how that made them feel talking about things about there's only 30 statues in the UK to people of colour um, out of 900 statues in total and these kind of things and I mean for me it's it's, I, I love doing that and the, the kind of things that the children say are inspiring and, and thoughtful and you can really see they're connecting the dots and thinking about things differently and and that, that's just one tiny little step on on that that way but it starts that conversation but the problem has always always been and and probably you all know this if you do work in school is getting into schools because it is so hard the curriculum is they they do so much the teachers are so impressed with academies and stuff like that there's just not a lot of room a lot of the time and so you're really wholly dependent on on teachers that are like-minded that teachers think that kind of sounds interesting or I would really like my my kids to kind of learn a bit more about this and so when I think about structural changes it would be really nice to see a structural change within the curriculum um you know to, to reform kind of history when it when it comes to the history curriculum particularly but also things like having PSHE as something that all kids get have to be taught rather than, you know, kids that the, the academies can choose and things like that. Because I think, you know, it's it's so hard to get engagement with school kids. And I, I echo what Melissa said in that. I think a lot of this work is around education when, when you're younger. I mean, some of the workshops that I've done, I did these same workshops in um, Haringey today, but I did them in County Durham, like not that long ago, two months ago, it was a whole completely different conversation. And I'm not from too far from that area. So I kind of went into it, potentially knowing what some of the, the views were going to be, but um, it made me think more than the Haringey one, actually, that, you know, that was really important because a lot of those children weren't having those conversations. And those views were never being shared in a space where they felt like that they could say something. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you have any more thoughts on how to keep activism sustainable or, yeah, anything along those lines? kind of sort of responding to the, the structural comments so I, I think for me it's not a kind of binary issue where working within or without structures like one is better than the other because I, I mean I think there are situations where working within structures can burn you out far far more quickly and actually it's a lot easier to say we're gonna create our own structure that counteracts that structure and I think it's always this issue of the individual being within the collective and it's a really complex, complex relationship between the two. So I think it, it depends on so many different factors, but I, I think, yeah, it's not a clear cut issue. And often it's about kind of responding to structures and using the resources that you have to, to create alternatives. 
and yeah, yeah. I wish you took notes. Is this is being recorded though, isn't it? Okay, so yeah, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I guess um, and I mean there was also another aspect to what we want to speak about right now in terms of um, like how we can also work a bit better with the issues that people like facing communities and how we can kind of get beyond like these kind of single issues and kind of have better understanding of the issues that affect communities. Um, and I don't know if we want to start another conversation on that or if we maybe want to just like spend a little bit of time reflecting on like just anything from this workshop and kind of maybe reflecting on like our own practices and what we do and what we think we might change about how we approach things. Um, does anyone have any preferences or um, either way? I don't like hierarchy, so please don't make me decide. <laughs> um, right. Do people, does anyone want to talk about um, getting beyond single issues? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Like connecting things and understanding things through an intersectional lens. So understanding that the system that you're fighting when you're protesting at BLM is the same system that you're protesting when you're demanding that BAME nurses aren't disproportionate, aren't uh aren't enduring sorry i forgot how to say disproportionately um aren't disproportionately dying from uh covid19 um and so making sure that people are able to see these things within a broad interconnected sphere especially on issues that perhaps activists have sometimes not been willing to connect the dots such as climate change activism and I think as well as connecting those dots between different causes, but also just embedding that kind of approach in our regular day jobs, if they're not relevant to, to those things um, and having other people do that as well. So teachers and, and so healthcare workers, as you, you've used that example, you know, if, if that was accounted for in their practice as individuals, when enough individuals are doing that, that might influence how that system works and, stop that um such a, a that change in outcomes between different groups of people um and obviously that takes accepting that there are those um problems that underpin lots of different systems um like racism and being able to know how that applies in your own context and then being able to to account for it and, it, and it's, as you mentioned earlier, going into schools, um, especially now with um, COVID, like getting into them is, is I'm finding even more difficult. But also when we're engaging with organisations, 
and actually trying even if it's not on a kind of equality inclusion sort of scope but trying to bring in um the fact that even if so in my in my work I talk about safeguarding and do safeguarding training but actually when we talk about safeguarding things like racism and, and prejudice and perceptions and stereotypes are all really relevant um so just trying to make that not it standalone um a standalone topic all the time and just seeing how that can how we can always make sure we're bringing that in because if we're not we're missing um we're missing an opportunity but also not doing whatever the other topic is justice because it's bound to be relevant to it um, and it's just understanding how it is and being able to communicate that yeah i think actually that um really relates to how like one thing I've, I actually haven't really mentioned about like um, us as a collective alternative fictions, we're all actually from um, about backgrounds of um, film and anthropology. And so we mostly make um, like our work is it's a lot of documentary work. And that's something that kind of was what brought us together was these discussions is how um, is that particularly like working in those fields um, where people are talking a lot about social issues, but where things like safeguarding or, you know, good representation can get thrown out the window in exchange for drama or aesthetics. And people think, well, I'm an artist. I don't need to care about these things. Um, which I think there's like kind of, we've kind of worked with different people and some of us have had situations where we've seen some, people be put into some extremely unsafe, like people who have agreed to be put on camera, to, to speak on camera, being put into very unsafe situations by the directors afterwards, whether it's revealing information about them that they haven't consented to be revealed or that was actually having a tangible, like a bad tangible effect on their life. And um, also how people approach talking about representation or whether it is um, again kind of like this topic of trendy issues like what does that mean if like you know 200 filmmakers go to freeze during the refugee crisis or um, you know what um, what does it mean when people just chase issues in like with the hope that this issue will be the thing that makes them famous which I think we've come across quite a few people who I would argue are very much opportunistic and have acted that way. And I think in some ways us being collective was, um, I think this was, these were some of the conversations we were having quite early on and maybe one strategy we kind of came up with to somehow have a voice about this. I don't know, Sam, do you want to jump in? I'm rambling again. No, you, you did good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, or Lydia, also, you're, you're also. <laughs> I'm not the spokesperson. I'm just the one that doesn't have COVID, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I shouldn't be asking Sam. But um, no, I guess my point was just like saying what Melissa was saying about kind of embedding this stuff into your work is something that I think we see as essential. I think we and it's creating spaces beyond like in your work and it's like going out and doing 
finding other places to have these conversations and finding different groups that's the point and if you're saying you are an activist or that you are an ally and you want to help a cause but you have to you kind of have to do it in a lot of different ways as well it can't just be one like it can't be like a single-minded action it has to exist in multiple forms be it like for us in our films but also in these workshops that we do and trying to find different spaces to to further a cause and it's yeah just I mean being active in multiple like multiple arenas is the most important thing for yeah. me personally like that's what I see being like being an ally is is being there and knowing when to be there and knowing how to use your voice as well in different ways because you can't always necessarily take up the space but you can still you can still act and you can still do things and it's yeah I don't know if I'm making yeah. sense. I mean I think for me the other thing is about knowing how you can use your privilege without kind of getting into some like hardcore discussion about what is privilege and who is what like at the end of the day we all have certain privileges like we all have them and we can kind of decide how we can utilize them. And I think the one thing I saw is that we have, we have the privilege of having master's degrees in anthropology and kind of having this training about how we can work with people. We have the privilege of having cameras and having people that agree to speak to us. And I mean, I know like this discussion of like kind of some things that were brought up about like, um, about self-care and that exhaustion. Um, I mean, growing up as a Filipino, um, a mixed race Filipino in rural Scotland, um, like I was constantly like, I remember being in schools and they were just like, you know, pointing out people because they're a different ethnicity is wrong. And then having all the teachers look at me for, to be the spokesperson for the, like being the one person of a vaguely different ethnicity, like, I just, that was exhausting and the way I can see it now is like, I have some privilege of being a, like having some sort of um, not resistant. I'm really bad with words today, um, but having a bit more energy to kind of work with these things, which I think is why I try and do what I do because these exhaust, these yeah, just exhausting conversations all over the place. and. We kind of hope that maybe we can save some people that exhaustion every so often. Um, yeah. Um, this thing. So we're kind of at twenty to nine in the UK, right? Um, so I think we'd quite like to like we said this was going to be a two part session, but I think actually it's kind of, it's all kind of blended together a bit because we're quite a small group. Um, so I think it'd be quite nice if we spend the last few minutes, um, maybe reflecting on like, maybe what the meanings of these words are, what is allyship, what is solidarity? And what do these words mean to us? Cause I think everyone has quite a different relationship to these words and maybe some thoughts people have had about their own practices or what they're kind of maybe thinking about going forwards, like how, like any thoughts or reflections people might have about the work they're doing. Um, yeah, so maybe it'd be a nice chance to reflect on these topics. 
And I ramble, so I'm not going to start because you will just take up all the time. I'm, I'm really sorry I had to, I was distracted. So I just missed that last bit because I had to kind of pop out what was sorry. Um, we were just saying that we want to use the last 20 minutes to maybe reflect on like maybe what is allyship, what solidarity, what do these um, terms mean to us personally and um, any reflections we have on our own work um, and maybe how um, maybe things we can share with other people about maybe some of the topics like any whether it's tactics we want to share with people or want to talk about your own work things that you've done that you think are successful things that maybe you're kind of thinking I might change this like um yeah so it's just a reflection session now sorry I think um, I think based on um, Sarah mentioned a point about kind of it being like a natural thing, something that's kind of embedded in rather than you have to actively, um, you know, make the time and effort. Obviously, it's kind of like the ideal. So so it made me think, in, you know, in the different aspects of my life, are there kind of sometimes little things sometimes big things but can I can I embed that into all aspects so I do quite a lot work wise on that working for this project which is great and actually similarly I've I've done this kind of evaluation with other like activist movements too like in the feminist sphere and it is quite helpful to think about that like I I do quite a lot for work but there's definitely more that I could do you know in personal life maybe friends just very informally you know when and um, without non-hierarchically but kind of talking about these kind of issues and you know and maybe there's more there's more that I can do you know definitely in terms of family which I always think is quite a difficult one for some people depending on on your family but um you know I think that can be particularly difficult for people um yeah if anyone had any kind of thoughts or tips or advice on that that would be interesting to hear. <laughs> um, my reflections kind of from this session is that allyship and solidarity just means recognizing your own privileges and allowing um, you to really listen to others who don't have the privileges that you have and just kind of providing a voice and a platform to allow others, other voices to be heard and to really amplify those voices. Um, I think that in over the past few months, um, in the work that I've been doing, I've learned a lot from um, the community that I'm really fortunate to be a part of. And I've learned so much of um, about um, other voices that I hadn't really thought about before. And um, Jules, it's funny that you mentioned that you're uh, half Filipino, half Scottish, because I am as well. And I grew up in Scotland, <laughs> um, but I moved yeah, to- <laughs> I, I didn't know that many of us existed, but- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I moved to Scotland when I was 13. Um, so 
um, I was all of a sudden the only Asian girl in my school. And that was basically my identity for about 10 years. And, and I didn't really see myself beyond that. Um, but and it took a really long time to kind of reconcile my own and form my own identity. Um, leaving Scotland, I live in London now and just kind of, and also then being a part of this community has really helped me shape who I, how I see myself. And, but then it's also really helped me understand the privileges that I've held over these years. And by kind of widening my circle and, and having this platform with End the Virus of Racism, I've been able to learn so much about um, different people who go through so many struggles. And, and through this, by allowing myself to have this platform, I've been able to learn and actually try to be more of an ally to listen to others and allow them to speak up and, and share their story. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I echo those points. I mean, my activism is in um, environmentalism, which is very middle-class white. Um, and one of the things I did have learned along the way is when you're offering yourself up as a, a, like a, an ally, it's, you know, I, as an activist, I tend to have control freak aspects about myself. I kind of want to take over, I want to sort stuff out. And when it comes to being an ally or in solidarity, it's basically just coming forward and saying, I'm here to help. You know, you tell me what I need to do instead of saying, hey, I'm here. You know, I'm, it's not a case of like taking over, but yeah, you know, actually just asking the people that are involved what you can do instead of thinking that you, you know, naturally just kind of know best. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a it is different within environmentalism, um, and especially where I live, um, it's uh, it's I, we try to make it really inclusive, um, but for where areas that we live, it's yeah, it's it is quite difficult. Mm. Any other thoughts or reflections? Or any um, advice for Amy with her um, query there? I was gonna say um, in response to Amy, I think with family, it's something I find really, really hard. And um, I think the long and the short of it is you have to be willing to fall out with them <laughs> in, in lots of ways because <laughs> um it's yeah and you think oh you know it's my family I'll be more tolerant but actually I find I'm the least tolerant with my family and also I find myself being quite reactionary and defensive in in my speech especially when I sort of see it, someone coming from a place of ignorance I kind of tend to judge that ignorance and be quite um yeah I guess judgmental in the way I respond and that actually is a much quicker way to shut down conversation but it's really hard when you feel your kind of your emotions are running high and um you maybe you feel some anger um but I think I, I this is something I'm trying to practice is kind of mindfulness of my of the way I'm talking and mindfulness of speech and kind of just taking a few deep breaths and actually seeing it as an opportunity for learning rather than criticizing 
that person for especially if they're kind of they're also curious and they're genuinely asking questions I think it's different when um somebody doesn't want to have a conversation with you and you have to make that judgment is it actually worth pursuing this this conversation but when I think someone a family member is coming from a place of ignorance um I kind of try to see it as my responsibility to respond to that mindfully and kind of in a sensitive way and that doesn't mean I can't take them to task on certain things or to question their assumptions it's just the way I go about doing that that doesn't lead to an angry argument although it invariably does <laughs> yeah I, I see it as a challenge I will always speak to people who are maybe <laughs> um yeah they're showing not a willingness yeah they're showing ignorance or not willingness to uh listen to another point of view but then I see that as a challenge of how many different ways can I approach this to like maybe maybe one thing I've said might they might question something after the conversation like right yeah I would always get in I would always talk I would always have a conversation with someone like that rather than going there's no point he'll they'll never change um but yeah it's hard to not get angry because then you can mm then you, you're in danger of cutting it forever. Mm. But, um, and people can take it quite personally sometimes. I think, you know, I had an experience of this and that was really hard, you know, in that I kind of shared my views on something and the response was kind of like, well, we're friends and I'm not going to kind of have an argument with a friend about this kind of thing because we're friends. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, but if I'm your friend, you'd know that this is important to me and that that's something that, you know that I spent like devout d d devote a lot of time to and and you know and uh and I found that hard this kind of idea that I'm I'm not being mature because I'm not putting this friendship first perhaps or that like it's uh it's you know overly emotional of me to to focus on this you know like um that that I found that particularly hard I think that was heightened also in the times of um, being a lot online a lot because of the pandemic you know I think that's massively affected um, those kind of conversations. I think it I think it's really hard and personally I've developed a like rather intense and stringent uh, coping mechanism where basically well it's also because the work that I do is quite political and I have to think about racism on a day-to-day -day basis so my logic is, well, there are some contexts in which I'm literally paid to do this education. Uh, and then that's fine because I'm being compensated for this labor. But in my free time, I do not wish to have these um, interactions because I just simply can't, like, I just don't have the capacity for it. And I just, like, I just can't. Um, and so that means that honestly, the people that I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis you know, that are friends or family are an increasingly smaller group. And they're people that I know who are like-minded and who will not, you know, ask me questions that will make me feel attacked or uncomfortable or unsafe, you know, on a Thursday night after work when I'm like trying to watch Netflix kind of thing. Um, and I think like some people see that as quite can see that as quite immature or selfish or maybe like counterproductive or hypocritical but it's also like yeah but I'm not obliged to have to do this education and 
advocacy and activism 24 hours a day and like like and they're still gonna pay me to have this conversation and I know that sounds really capitalistic but like I just don't have the capacity and I think it's okay to be like you know what I don't have the capacity to have this conversation with you right now I will happily share some articles with you but I cannot debate this with you at this moment because I spent the whole day you know doing xyz I was gonna say something similar um and I know it's obviously really different I don't have any family that um you know, are racist to me or have conversations that, you know, where I, I feel like I need to check them on things. My family is very small um, and the ones that are around aren't white. So there's not that kind of conflict. But in terms of friend groups, I think it is at that question of where your values are and, and um, you know, your personal ethics. And that should be reflected in the people that are around us as well. And I know it's not going to always be that simple. Um, but in the same, um, what you were just saying, my friendship group just gets smaller because I will meet people who I can be friends with because we, we're on the same page about things. Um, and those that I may have known, you know, for 10 plus years since school, we may still be connected and, you know, meet the kids together and things like that. But it's not a true friendship if I know that really you're a bit racist and because I don't want to be friends with racists. <laughs> um, and I think yeah it's obviously not an easy thing but um it's it's for me at least it's much easier that way you know I don't need to to spend time with people who have fundamentally different worldviews than me in such a kind of critical on such critical points yeah I I've got to say what like just this last bit of the conversations made me think a lot about how um I've because um, I've realized kind of in recent years that I've not had too many issues with my friends circles like it's I guess a bit of an echo chamber almost but I've realized it's because I've just burnt bridges with people all over the place and um, particularly having like close friends that um, like have tried to have arguments with me about like why should we talk about racism or why should we talk about issues facing people of color and should be like well i'm catholic like we were oppressed at one point and i'm just there going like yeah when they weren't busy colonizing half the world sure <laughs> yeah and you're just kind of like well i'm filipina like what do you want to say about this you know um but like in terms of actually talking with family members because um yeah, like um, one thing I've kind of found is like, I've honestly, like um, when I'm not shouting or just boring people to death talking about this stuff, um, I've actually found like what's actually quite effective is kind of really listening to what people are saying sometimes. And actually kind of using, not using it against them, but kind of using it to open up other conversations. So for example, my dad, who is the white side of my family, um, He's one of those people that's quite like defensive about talking about colonialism and reparations. He's like, well, I didn't colonize anyone, like, or my ancestors, like, as like they was like the reformers, like they did colonize anyone, and I don't see why it's important to talk about these things anymore. Um, but then, kind of like, kind of like had a bit of a discussion about this, but then left it. But then there was another point where my dad was talking about um, like his experiences of being in the Philippines and how 
like his observation was that he found it really sad that Filipinos don't have, um, he thinks they should be prouder of who they are. And kind of like, he's like, you know, it's a beautiful country, lovely people, da 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 da. And I was like, well, do you think that maybe 400 years of colonialism had an impact there? And that's the first time he actually kind of went, I see your point. Like, I see your point talking about colonialism. I see your point in what you're saying about trying to recognize it and what that impact could be. And so sometimes I just find like trying to like swing it in when someone said something else, like just curveball a little bit. Um, it definitely works more effectively than when I shout at people I've found. That sometimes works a little bit, but uh, it's exhausting. I wouldn't recommend it in my old age these days. <laughs> um, right, so, I mean, do we, we're getting quite close to uh, nine o'clock. Does anyone have any final comments um, or before we wrap things up? If not, then um, I just want to say thank you all for coming. Um, can I say, can we have a, a quick look at Amber's work? Is there any way we can get a bit closer? I was going to say, like, I really want to thank Amber for everything she's been doing. Is there? Yeah, I can bring the laptop forward and I can show it around. Yeah. I think we'll oh, yes, if we change it to speaker view, then we all just be quiet, maybe except Amber, or we all turn our microphones off. I don't know if that might bring her work. There, I've, I've spotlit. Oh, well done, Amber. Can you guys see it? So this is what I've done so far. So just listening and then watching, um, listening to the videos as well. Oh, that looks so good. That's so cool. And then a little bit about, um, sorry, I'm like, got it at a different angle here. <laughs> and then about exhaustion as well. Um, just moving across. I also did the flag of Philippines. Oh. <laughs> and mentioned about uh, children in the future, uh, helping the community. Um, also added, I saw, I heard environmentalism, so I thought I'd add it on there. Um, the agenda, uh, the structure, and hearing uh, some of your sort of incredible mm. stories as well. So hopefully that will be done today. <coughs> so yeah. Amber, that's wonderful. Thank Amazing. you so much. Yeah. And also, Amber, you haven't actually had a chance to say anything, and you've been listening quite intensely to all our conversations. So do you have any thoughts to share? Um, good question. I mean, I think this is when I think, how do I put it? I feel I'm, I mean, as a black person, so I grew up in East London. So it was pretty mixed up from school. I went to all girls school. So it was a mix of, um, you had black, you had Latina, you had the Filipino community as well. Those were all grouped together. And then as I got a bit older and started working, you can see that there was a, I felt there was a shift in diversity. And I felt that there was sometimes you go into these, like, into these different rooms and you feel like, do I belong there? Or do I feel like I need to explain stuff? So um, even listening to the videos, like some I have watched on social media, there's sometimes I have to come off on social media because it can be quite triggering. There's so, I mean, recently about, and SARS, Black Lives Matter, um, seeing, you know, people who are peacefully protesting and being attacked, it, it can get much. So sometimes you have to try and find ways to still talk about it, but without being too engrossed into the phones. But I mean, sometimes it does have it, it most of the time it does have its perks because it allows people to open their eyes to see what's going on. And so, I mean, when we had um, 
uh, the protests on Black Lives Matter. I mean, everyone was at home during lockdown and around the world, everyone saw it. So it created that moment where everyone felt, I need to do something, whether it was going outside or just, you know, expressing it on social media, um, myself drawing it out. It, it's really like, I felt it was a variety of stuff that's um, unfolded. It's someone mentioned to me a while ago that we're kind of living in the post-truth where things were kind of um, quietened down. I mean, in the UK, like things are kind of hushed and then as things are more unraveling, especially when it comes to colonialism and, um, you know, especially with the statues as well going down, like whether um, there needs to be a space or it's not a space, there's just so much things that were, that have become now more challenging questions rather than questions that you nip in the bud, as they say. So, um, yeah, I hope that explains a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really, really interesting insight into it as well. Yeah, uh, we should just said you should join in. Like, nah. you should just, you should just. Um... Really, really great workshop. <laughs> Jules, I was wondering, do we have um, do we have a plan for the drawing for Amber's work? We should make one. I was just wondering because we, I mean, I'd love it on display at the meeting house you know, but unless you had other ideas for it, but that's one option. We could have it on display at the meeting house. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely something we could do. We might borrow it from time to time, but... Um... Oh no, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if there's, if there, that's one option of where, it, of, of where it could be, or we could have it up for a while or something. Yeah. And um, actually one thing um, I want to mention is if people want, we, have compiled um, a list of resources, some of the articles we were reading in preparation for this event. And um, yeah, some videos that we thought really um, encapsulated some of these issues, um, people talking about their approaches to activism and you know, talk about things like performative activism, optical activism and like what we can learn from historical issues as well. So if people want, we can send that around. Um, yeah, just, yeah, let us know if you're happy for us to do that. And it'd be great, Amber, if you can maybe get a picture of the drawing to kind of send around with that. Definitely, you can do that. Awesome, thanks. Thank you everyone for joining us this evening. It was really, it was really great. Sorry, I was quite silent today. Yeah. And um, also, like the parts that have been recorded of the video, um, yeah, we'll um, probably be edited down to have less of me rambling maybe, hopefully. Um, but they'll also be available for everyone. Um, I guess we'll, it'll be on the New TV Meeting House's um, YouTube channel. And- I'll share it across our socials as well. And then yeah. if we have, um, if I don't know for GBPR, things about emails but if you just give it to Amy Amy's got everyone's emails that's so, fine okay. um yeah so if you want to see that video or if you do want to kind of get in contact and say anything about that um maybe get in contact with Amy or you can kind of find us on um Shows. yeah you can speak to us on Instagram or what have you um just entering fictions would be like just yeah we're there I think and we do have another workshop coming up on uh, inclusion and exclusion within activism in about a month's time. So that information is available on the uh, New Green Meeting House website as well. And on, it will be available on our socials and on our website as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just uh, want to say thank you to everyone. Thanks um, 
like not just for being here but like for sharing your perspectives and experiences and like your thoughts and I think it's been a really interesting conversation and it's been great to kind of hear um yeah your thoughts and experiences so thank you so much <laughs>